This is the first time I've spoken in this building. And uh, just one glance around, you realize it wasn't built by Protestants, (laughs) much less by evangelicals. (laughs) Not least because we wouldn't spend this much on beauty. (laughs) But uh, this has been a great gift of God, not only to Tyndale, but through Tyndale to the wider church in Toronto and in the rest of the country. So it is a a privilege to be here. I actually first spoke at what was then called Ontario Bible College 40 years ago this year. I know I can't be that old, but I am. (laughs) And uh, in those days, they used to have a a week-long spiritual emphasis week in September, second or third week of the school year, in which... uh, In the morning, there was a session on what are the fundamentals of a healthy Christian life. And I was invited to speak on that occasion. I was living in England at that time. But I came and did that each morning here at uh, OBC. And then I was speaking every night that same week at Bayview Glen Church, just up the road here. And uh, so I have a long history with, uh, with this place. And uh, I was in this building once when my daughter graduated. She graduated twice from Tyndale, uh, once with a bachelor's degree, and then she did the the, uh, teaching course as well. When Joan DeVries invited me to come, she suggested that I might talk about vision. I'm mentioning that so that you blame her uh, if you've already flogged this to death in the student development uh, folks who are here from across the country. I know that's your theme. But I want to just read a verse from Acts 26, three verses in fact, from 19, verse 19 to 22. Paul is on trial before King Agrippa. And as part of his defense, he told his story about how that he met the Lord Jesus on the Damascus road, was converted, and was immediately charged with a ministry. And he explains a little bit about that, and then he says in verse 19, so then King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Vision in the Bible comes from God. Not from trying to dream up the ideal world we'd like to see or the desired future that we would like for ourselves. Paul describes his vision here as a vision from heaven. And the nature of that vision, we have in a little bit more detail back in Acts chapter 9. I'll just read you two verses there. When we have the actual story from on the Damascus Road, meeting the Lord, being blinded, going to a house in Damascus, remaining there three days, after which a man called Ananias came to him. And in Acts 9 verse 15, he says, The Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles, and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. You're going to preach the gospel 
Saul, and you're going to get into deep trouble. You're going to suffer for my name, which is why when Paul talks to Agrippa about not being disobedient to the vision from heaven, he includes in that, this is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Be careful of confusing vision with thinking about our most desirable future. In the corporate world, that's how you define vision. What do we want to see? What's our most desirable future? This was not a particularly desirable future for Saul of Tarsus. You're going to get into trouble. You're going to be uh, persecuted and seized and suffering. That's part of the vision he placed into the heart of Saul of Tarsus, which is why we're not in a position to actually receive vision and to face some fundamental issues in our relationship with Jesus Christ and that they are in place and they include that we deny ourselves, we take up our cross and we're willing to lose our lives in order that we may find them in their fullness. Otherwise, we won't be looking for vision. We'll be looking for a career that's safe, that's successful, But you know, success is not the evidence of a being from God. In Jeremiah 23 and verse 16, speaking about some false prophets, this is what the Lord says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God said to Jeremiah, these prophets have concocted a vision of their own and it is full of hope. So people love it. In fact, false vision is always positive, it's always exciting, it's always successful, it's always victorious when it's false because you want to excite people about something good. But sometimes, latent within true vision from God is the danger of trying to bring it about prematurely. And I thought I'd just share a few examples of that in the scripture, which have been helpful to me in my own process of not only living the Christian life, but in the uh, years of service uh, that God called me to, that God can implant a vision that is from God, it's from heaven, and we get impatient trying to make it work. Abraham is a case in point. You remember when Abraham was 75 years of age? God had told him nothing yet about his purpose for him other than that he should have left Ur of the Chaldees and traveled to Canaan. And when he got there, 75, God said to him one night, look up at the, star, at the sky. How many stars can you see up there? And Abraham probably said, lots. <laughs> How many grains of sand do you think lie along the seashore? Lots and lots. Well, Abraham, let me tell you something. You're going to have a son, and from that son will come a nation, and that nation will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, and through the seed of that nation, I'm going to bless the world. Well, Abraham, at 75, had no son. He'd been married for donkey's years to Sarah. She was obviously infertile, or one of them was, but she was now, what it says, she was barren but she was now long past the menopause. She was 65, he was 75. And Abraham, it says, believe God. God, this is uh, a little bit ridiculous. 
but I know who's speaking. It's God speaking, and therefore I'm going to believe it. I'm going to trust you. And it was credited to him as righteousness. He went home and told Sarah. God had not spoken to Sarah. He left Abraham to do that. And I can imagine the conversation. The Bible isn't complimentary about either one of them. It says about Abraham and him as good as dead. So he wasn't particularly healthy. He says that twice about him. He says about Sarah, she was worn out. I have no idea why, because she had no children. <laughs> but she must have been too much, doing too much potato picking or something, and she was worn out. And I can imagine Abraham coming home as good as dead, coming into the house, and there's worn out Sarah lying on the beanbag wherever she used to lie, and saying, Sarah? God spoke to me today. Really? What did he say? He said he's going to give us something. You'll never guess what it is. <laughs> it begins with B. Another beanbag? No, another beanbag. He's going to give us a baby. And it says Sarah believed Abraham. They had a marvelous, trusting marriage with this ridiculous announcement. So they probably started painting the room. That's what you do when you get this information. Picking up a bit of secondhand furniture. <laughs> and waited. After three months, I can imagine Abraham saying, Sarah, how are you feeling? You okay? Yeah, I'm absolutely fine. Not putting on weight at all? No. You're not being sick? No. You're not doing funny things like eating bananas and onions at the same time? No. Six months went by. Twelve months went by. Two years went by. Eight years went by. Ten years went by. And it was Sarah who brought up the subject in Genesis 16. She said, Abraham, in effect, I'll paraphrase it. Did you tell me that God told you we were going to have a baby? Well, yes, he did. You sure it was God who told you that? Well, yes, it was God who told me that. You sure you hadn't been drinking something that night? Or eating too much blue cheese? You sure you weren't dreaming? No, I wasn't dreaming. Well, where's the baby, Abraham? I don't know, Sarah, he probably said. Maybe God didn't know how worn out you were. And she probably said, maybe he didn't know how dead you were, Mr. Abraham. But with the vision of God ringing in their ears for 10 years, there is no baby, and so they concoct a strategic plan to bring about the vision of God. Sarah's idea again. Why don't you have the baby through the maid Hagar? Within the culture of the day, that was not completely unusual. And so Abraham thought that was a smart idea, and so Hagar conceived Abraham's child gave birth to a boy and they called him Ishmael and Abraham must have been thrilled to bits. At last, sorry God, I didn't think about Hagar before. Sorry, I was thinking about Sarah. Of course, how ridiculous. Thank you for this beautiful little boy. And I, Ishmael began to grow up when Ishmael was 13 years of age. God came to Abraham a second time and said, Abraham, yes, 
Do you remember I told you that your wife would give birth to a baby boy? Yes. Well, this time next year, she'll give birth to the boy. Excuse me? We've already got him. He's called Ishmael. He's 13 years of age. He's outside playing football. Look, that's him. But you know what Genesis 21 verse 2 says? It says, Sarah became pregnant, bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. But Abraham, in impatience for what was a vision from heaven, has produced Ishmael. And that's still a problem today. You ever notice that deliberate mistake God made when he told Abraham to offer his son Isaac? You all know that story. And when he called him, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. You notice the deliberate mistake? Take your only son, Isaac. Abraham could well have said, God, you just made a mistake. Isaac is not my only son. I have two sons. Ishmael is my son also. Well, God knew that. Of course God knew that. So why did God call him his only son? The answer is in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 22. It is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way. But his son by the free woman was born as a result of a promise. When he says that the son by Hagar was born in the ordinary way, simply meaning there was a totally natural explanation for Ishmael's birth. When the local gossips met together and said, did you hear there's a baby in Abraham's household? They both said, wow, really? Who's the mother? The maid, Hagar. Juicy bit of gossip, eh? But it works. An old man, a young woman, it works. But when Isaac was born, he was born as a result of a promise when the neighbors got together and said, hey, I hear there's another baby in Abraham's household. Really? Who's the mother this time? Sarah. I beg your pardon? Sarah. No, no, not the grandmother. Who's the mother? No, Sarah's the mother. What's the explanation? God did something. And the explanation for a vision from heaven and for the lives we live in that vision from heaven, whether it's personally or whether it's corporately, is that there are things in the fulfilling of that vision that are inexplicable apart from the fact God has been doing it. You can't explain what has been going on in terms of personalities or gifts or abilities. Those are all, of course, part and parcel of what God uses. But behind all of that, there's something inexplicable except God has been doing something. And... Uh, the problem with the vision from heaven is we often get impatient. Not only Abraham, Moses did the same thing. Moses, as you know, grew up in the royal palace through a fluke of Egypt. He was on first name terms with all the hierarchy of Egyptian leadership. Adopted son, the Pharaoh's daughter. 
And at the age of 40, he went out and saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew slave. And he thought, we're told in Acts chapter 7, he went to his defense, avenging him by killing the Egyptian. And Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them. In other words, somewhere before that, God had whispered into Moses' ear, or maybe more dramatically, give him a vision. Moses, you're not here in the royal palace by some fluke alone that you can, you know, live off all the fatness of Egypt. You're here as a Hebrew, because you're the one who's going to lead Israel out of its bondage. Moses had some sense of that, because he thought the Israelites would now recognize it. But when he killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, he probably buried him a little too quickly, left his big toe sticking out one end and his nose the other, and suddenly came along, tripped over the nose, landed on the toe, and the body stood up, and they found it. And Moses became a wanted man, and he fled out to the Midian Desert and spent the next 40 years in the desert. He found some girls looking after sheep. He got a job with them. Then he married one of them. And the next 40 years, he did nothing but herd sheep every day. Live with his mother-in-law, which is never a good idea. <laughs> Looked like sheep by the end of those 40 years, probably smelt like a sheep, probably sounded like a sheep. Hallelujah. <laughs> Amen. And one day at the burning bush, a bush which burned, and that was not unusual, it would spontaneously ignite and burn itself out. But this went on burning and burning. He went to see the strange sight and God spoke to him out of the bush and said, take off your shoes. I've come. I'm going to send you to deliver Israel out of Egypt. And Moses' response was, who am I? God, I can't do that. 40 years ago, I believed I could. 40 years ago, I understood that. 40 years ago, I wanted to. 40 years ago, I was in a strategic position. But now I'm 80 years of age. I'm disheartened. My strength is weak. I can't do this. And God said, I'll be with you. This will be the explanation, Moses. Not what you were doing for me. It's what I am doing through you. That'll be the explanation. Just present yourself to me. And let me do it. I will bring them out of Egypt. I will deliver them from their oppressors and so on. If you read the account in Exodus chapter 3. Moses again at 40. With clearly some indication in his heart that God would use him. Blew it because he prematurely tried to implement what God had shown him. You know, there's a great verse that's been a great help to me in Isaiah 5 and verse 19. There's a whole list of woes in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who run after drinks. He says, woe to those who build house to house. There's no space left. And a whole list of things. And then he comes to an interesting one in verse 19. Woe to those who say, let God hurry. Let him hasten his work that we may see it. Let it approach that the plan of the Holy One of Israel come that we may know it. You notice that? Woe to those who say, let God hurry. Let him finish his work that we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan come. Woe, says Isaiah. Because when God calls us, it is true, he equips us with those means of fulfilling what he's called us to, but the timing is always his. If I have a life verse, 
It's 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24. The one who calls you is faithful, he will do it. Not the one who calls you is faithful, so you be faithful in return and you do it. But if he calls you, he's the one who will do it. So live out of your union with him, live out of your dependence on him, live out of your trust in him, burn your timetable and give him time. David did that. For another example, in the Old Testament scripture, David was anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel when he was just a teenager. But he was 30 when he came to the throne. And in those intervening years, he was mostly on the run from King Saul, but he refused any opportunity to help the process of his own enthronement along by killing Saul. He had two opportunities to do so. Once in En Gedi, he was in a cave hiding and Saul had come with 3,000 men to search for him. And uh, he was hiding in a cave and Saul came into the cave, as the uh, NIV says, to go to the bathroom. The uh, King James says, to relieve himself. <laughs> and uh, took his coat off. And in the darkness of the cave, David, as you remember, crept up with a knife, cut a piece of his coat, went to the back of the cave again, saw, finished, went outside. David followed a few minutes later, stood at the cave and said, anybody missing a piece of coat? And saw, oh, that's mine. Saul, this could have been your life, but I cut your coat, I could have cut your neck. Because... God put you on the throne. God will take you off. The second occasion when uh, he was also being hunted down, he came across Saul's camp one night and they were sleeping. And Saul was sleeping out in the open with his sword in the ground next to his, next to his body and, and a water jug next to him. And David crept up because his bodyguards were asleep as well. Took the sword, took the water jug, when Saul woke up the next morning, where's my sword, where's my jug, who's had it, come on, where is it? And across the river, David chats across, anybody recognize this sword? Saul, this could have cut your head off. But God will put me on the throne in his own time. And Saul of Tarsus was like that too. Because having been told at his conversion, he'd take the gospel to the world, he went back home then to Tarsus, he was saved in Damascus. He made a brief visit to Jerusalem where he wasn't accepted by the hierarchy. Only Barnabas became his friend. He went off to Tarsus, you remember, and he learned a trade. He had trained in theology as a Pharisee. Now he goes and learns a trade to be a tent maker. And he waits there more than 10 years when Barnabas, who has been leading the work in Antioch, decides he needs an assistant pastor. And he goes to Tarsus to find him brings him back to work with him in Antioch. And one year after they were in Antioch, the elders were worshiping and praying and fasting, and the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called him. Called them. And Paul immediately knew, this is what God told me 13 years ago. And they set off to the Gentile world. Part one, preach the gospel to Gentiles. Part two, suffering. He knew it was coming. In fact, interestingly, Paul even boasted about the measure of his suffering because when he was being challenged as a genuine apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he, he says there about these other apostles, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Uh, sorry, that's one verse too early. Verse 23, are they servants of Christ? 
I'm out of my mind to talk like this, but I am more. And here's the evidence. I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. So how many times have they been in prison? Yeah? Is that all? I've been much more. How many times have they been flogged? I love it when Paul is flogged. Well, I don't love it when Paul is flogged, but I love his response when he comes around from his concussion because they left him for dead. Obviously unconscious. He gets up, it says, and he goes back into the city. He doesn't get up and run away and say, I think the Lord is leading me somewhere else. <laughs> but he knew God, he said, preach gospel to Gentiles. Well, I'm doing that. I'll suffer, so this is not a mistake. I understand it. And back into the city, stood up. Ladies and gentlemen, I was telling you something very important when I was rudely interrupted. <laughs> Let me finish my message. So these, he says, evidence of credential. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's 39 for those whose math isn't good. Five times the 39 lashes, every, every um, uh, strand having bone tied into it to lacerate his skin and dig into his flesh. Uh, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. It looks as though th these three times weren't the times that we know about from the book of Acts, which happened after Paul wrote this letter. So it looks as though most, time, most times Paul went on a boat and sank. <laughs> if I was one of his colleagues, I'd say, which, which boat are you going on, Paul? Okay, I'll come on the next one. Just put a red hat on so I can identify you more easily when you're in the water. <laughs> we'll try and rescue you. I'm glad he wasn't alive in the days of aviation anyway. But, but it begs the question, why didn't God keep his boats afloat? <laughs> and I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly moving. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I think he was in danger. <laughs> I've labored and taught. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. And this is the man who wrote, my God will supply all your needs. Don't make that a sentimental statement. That everything's going to be rosy. I've been without food. I've been cold and I've been naked. It doesn't tell us how he was naked. Maybe he was in the bathtub on the boat when it sank and he swam away with nothing. I don't know. But he said, I've been naked. I've been in an embarrassing, difficult situation. And I face daily the pressure of my concern for the churches. Who's weak? Don't I feel weak? Who's led into sin? Don't I inwardly burn? I struggle every way you struggle. He talks to him about burning as a, as a picture of sexual temptation. He said, I'm not free from any of that. I inwardly burn. I face all the battles you folks face, he says to them. And this is not evidence I'm not an apostle of God. It's evidence I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. Because things have gone wrong. And even Jesus, and I'll just finish. Even Jesus, at the age of 12, knew he'd be about his father's business. But he waited till he was 30 for his father to set him apart at his baptism when the Holy Spirit descended. And this marked the beginning of his ministry. And for 30 years, he never preached a sermon. He never healed or performed a miracle. He probably passed lame, blind, deaf people frequently. He never touched them and said, be healed. 
In fact, it seems there's nothing about his life to create any real curiosity about him as being different because when he began to preach, his brothers didn't believe it. You would have thought they would have noticed, wouldn't you? You thought Mary might have told them. Mary kept these things in her heart, we're told. But she never said to the other brothers and sisters, uh, have you ever wondered why Jesus never has to sit on the naughty chair? <laughs> ever wonder why he's always good? It's because he was God. No, she never told him that. He didn't tell his brothers. If they're out on the hillside looking up at the stars at night, do you like those stars? Yeah, they're beautiful, aren't they? I made those. In half a sentence, on a Wednesday afternoon, on the fourth day, a little bit of time left, make the stars also. Now he waited until his father set him aside. You know, I have seen good people, good young men and young women who have a vision from God, who begin to plan it out too meticulously who attach a timeline to where they think it's going to go and they produce Ishmael's, they produce dead Egyptians and they end up sidelined. When God whispers something to us, wait. Sometimes keep it in your heart and wait and see and if it is God who has spoken, the circumstances in time will work their way out. One time, God gave me a clear sense of something in my future. I waited for four years. I never told anybody I waited for four years. Another time, I waited for 11 years, saying, God, I think this is from you. Let's see how the circumstances pan out. Not manipulate anything. And one time, I waited 14 years from a clear sense, the most clearest sense in my life, that God had said something to me about my future. Only my wife knew. He'd spoken to her about the, exactly the same thing. And we thought he'll bring this to pass in the next few months. We waited 14 years. Tucked it away. Gave it up. Never talked about it until one day something happened that was exactly what we'd sensed before. And we could have blown it by trying to bring it about prematurely. So Paul's testimony is, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. My vision was from heaven. I didn't concoct it. It's from heaven. It's divine, given me by God. I didn't make it work. I let it work in God's timing. I was obedient. I was not disobedient. I was obedient to everything that I knew to do today. But I waited for God to move the peace along and bring about what he had planned for me. And that is our privilege in the Christian life, isn't it? It's especially our privilege in leadership. You, you will lead, as I have led, people who get very impatient. We want to see it now. Well, we are looking for that, but let's let God do it so that when it comes about, it's authentic. Otherwise, we can prematurely produce something that is not authentic just to get the vision on the road. And the scripture warns us against that in so many ways, such as I've seen. God who called us is faithful. He will do it. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that your word is always 
relevant because it is always true. We don't need to update it. We don't need to think of something new. We need to go back to those truths that you've revealed through your word. Thank you, you give vision. Thank you that you have a purpose, not only for our personal lives and our families, but you have a purpose for those ministries and churches that we're part of. And we want to know your mind more than anything else. We want to know not just your mind, we want to know your strengths in the fulfilling of that and your timing. And we pray that we'll be content with your timing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.